But at, at a very high level, I think some of the key um, factors that organizations can take into account when trying to advance an inclusion and diversity agenda is, is you know, setting goals, identifying what results they're hoping to achieve. This podcast is brought to you by Dentons, the world's largest law firm with a global team that builds agile, tailored solutions to meet the local, national, and global needs of private and public clients of any size in 183 locations serving 75 countries. Hi, everyone. My name is Heather Barnhouse, partner and lawyer in our Edmonton office. Welcome to my podcast, where I explore the topic of women in entrepreneurship and leadership and the ecosystem supporting the growth of this segment. Today, I'm joined by Rada Kosla, partner in Denton's Toronto office. I'm excited to talk to her today about her views on diversity and leadership generally, and specifically on the importance and need for allyship. Welcome, Rada. Hi, Heather. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Can you give our listeners a little bit of background about yourself? Sure. I mean, the introduction you gave from a professional perspective, I think, is there. I'm a partner in our banking and finance group out of our Denton's Toronto office. And I also co-lead our Toronto Women's Affinity Group. I think um, for the purposes of this conversation, it might also be helpful to know that I'm a South Asian woman. My parents are East Indian. They were born in Kenya in East Africa and immigrated to Canada in the early 70s. I was born in Canada and I grew up in small town Ontario as one of a very few visible minorities. Interesting. Is is that what you think that background and, and you know, where you were raised and and the fact that you were one of very few visible minorities what has ignited the passion in you for the concept of of allyship and leadership generally or what do you think ignited that passion yeah no i i think that certainly played a role i think i i've been able to take on the unique perspective of being a minority in a fairly um undiverse community when I was young and then moving Mm -hmm. into quite a diverse community being downtown Toronto and seeing quite clearly the interplay of some of those dynamics. And I think in terms of igniting my passion around, let's call it inclusion, diversity and um, equity initiatives and stepping out of the business world for a quick minute. I mean, in my view, like, it's 2020 and the thought of a kid or anyone else not getting a fair access to opportunities because they're racialized or they're a member of the LGBTQ plus community or for any other reason. And, and whether that's happening deliberately, um, subconsciously, or as a result of systemic or structural issues, that just seems wrong to me. And I think, I think we yeah. can do better than that. And, and I think having had the experience that I've had, it's important to me to use whatever platforms I have um, to help promote and advance EDI initiatives. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's probably one of the main motivators for my interest of this area. 
Yeah, it's it, it it's interesting how so obviously your you know your own personal circumstances, your own personal experience, but it's interesting as you talk about, you know, we're now in 2020 and and there really is this confluence of of reasons and and circumstances why this topic is globally gaining some some recognition and some some traction. Um, and and as you you alluded to, you know, you said sort of stepping out of the the business world. It's it's interesting because I think it is now one of those issues that people in their personal lives are really trying hard to reconcile with what their own organizations are doing around that topic, so that they they aren't having to you know step outside of this world or step outside of their view, but that they can really live those principles in a more holistic manner across all of the domains of, of their lives. That's certainly what what I think is is trending these days. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I think that's right. And 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 kind of putting this back into the business world, like I think it's important to recognize that we've certainly made progress with respect to the diversity and inclusion agenda within the legal industry and and many other industries over the last bunch of years. I mean, we know far more today than we did yesterday about the value of diverse and inclusive workplaces. Like we know that diversity and inclusion is good for business. I mean, there's been so many studies now that have shown that, you know, organizations with greater DNI balance perform better. They're better at recruiting and retaining talent. They're more productive. They're better at understanding their clients. Um, they generate more creative and innovative solutions to, to complex problems. And, and importantly, and I think this is a key factor, um, organizations with greater diversity and inclusion balance tend to be better financial performers. And, and to me, this is where it gets interesting. If in our personal lives, as you were mentioning, many people are um, finding a want, need, desire to promote greater inclusion, diversity, and equality. And if in the business world, we now know that diversity and inclusion is essentially a business imperative, sort of leads to that question of what are the barriers that are preventing organizations from achieving greater diversity and inclusion? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a really interesting question, I think, for, for maybe two sides of a, a coin. One, as you've commented about, you know, the, 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 the vast number of studies that point to better outcomes, better profitability, for example, uh, more creative solutions for organizations. There are some organizations, um, and certainly some countries are further ahead uh, than others, where uh, there's a legislative requirement for some diversity initiatives, um, you know, even at the board level, for example. And there's lots of lots of research that's being done on on what that means and how does that trickle down to the organization. Um, but it's also interesting, I think, from the organization's perspective, what what steps can we take? What you know, what tangible little steps can we take um, to embrace these things? Do you do you have any examples or any thoughts on what organizations can do if they don't happen to be uh, in an area where it's legislated that they must um, you know move towards a more balanced inclusion uh, model? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you know, you mentioned allyship at the outset of this conversation, and, and we can mm-hmm. probably loop back to that at 
at some point, and I think that plays into what organizations can do. But at, at a very high level, I think some of the key um, factors that organizations can take into account when trying to advance an inclusion and diversity agenda is, is you know, setting goals, identifying what results they're hoping to achieve, um, embedding practices that support those goals, collecting data around those goals, and importantly, tracking progress. Um, and, and I think really um, for, for any of that to be effective and to move from a concept of, you know, diversity and inclusion is a nice to have thing to it being a priority for an organization. I think that really revolves around buy-in from leadership. And, you know, I I think that buy-in from senior leadership is relevant regardless of who sort of owns the inclusion and diversity agenda, whether that's, you know, HR or a diversity officer. And I think visible and deliberate leadership engagement is a key contributing factor to advancing these efforts. And, and I mean, that, that looks like, I think things like, you know, ensuring that senior leaders are engaged with affinity groups, um, that they're attending events and sponsoring events, that they're embedding diversity into the organization strategy, that they're creating accountability mechanisms. Um, importantly, they're hosting listening sessions for executive and board members to learn about the experiences of underrepresented groups within the workplace and, and that they're being deliberate about DNI making their way onto meeting agendas. Yeah, I think all of those things are are really important. And and I think that just really emphasizes that you can't undertake this initiative with the goal of simply checking a box, like in order for it really to work, it really needs to be infiltrated throughout, as you say, meeting agendas throughout thought leadership pieces and and, and supporting the, the various yeah, events that are occurring within the organization so that the message can be not only heard, not only portrayed, but really lived um, by all levels within the organization and make it acceptable for those conversations to continue to happen. I think that's really important. I, I think it's important too that that be about collaborative action and the collaborative yes. action piece. Yeah, I think that's that's ensuring that marginalized members of our workplaces and communities have a seat at the table as we're developing policies and practices and establishing goals. And I think that's really a combination of um, self-reflection, learning from each other, listening, and having collaborative buy-in, which I think Mm -hmm. is key to moving the needle here. So if you were to summarize um, sort of what allyship means, what would you say that that is? To me, allyship is about individuals becoming collaborators to battle injustice and promote equity in the workplace. And, you know, allies are individuals who are using their platforms and their privilege to drive systemic improvements to workplace policies, to practices, 
the cultures. And I think that happens through, you know, any number of mechanisms. I think that's through supportive personal relationships. I think that's through public acts of sponsorship. I think that's through um, advocacy. And, and Heather, I think, I think it's really important to recognize that every single one of us is an ally to someone or to something. Um, I mean, I'll use myself as an example, like as a racialized woman, um, I've experienced all sorts of privilege, notwithstanding the fact that I'm a racialized woman. I mean, and, and I'm an ally to many people and to, to many causes like Heather, just by virtue of our careers, for example, uh, we've had some economic privilege that others might not experience. I mean, I grew up in a stable and healthy family like that has has been tremendously helpful to me the fact that the fact that I don't have an accent when I speak that can be viewed as a position of privilege with respect to some other um, marginalized members of our community Um, and and so recognizing factors like that I think is really important in using our platforms to be allies for others. I, I often get asked, like, how, like, how can I be an ally? Like, I don't, I'm, you know, maybe I'm not a marginalized person. And I like, I don't know what to do. I understand because and I'd like to be supportive, but I need some guidance on how to get involved. And I think people even asking those questions is a huge step in the right direction. <laughs> Um, and in my experience, I think, I think there are a few things that are kind of good first steps in starting to think about how we can be allies. And I'd be happy to share some of those if that'd be helpful. Yeah, that, that, that would be really helpful. I just, just before you do that, I think that, um, the theme that I'm hearing from you, and I'd be happy to hear if you, if you disagree with this, is that it's really interesting how, no matter what group you, you, you come from or with what group you identify, <clears throat> everybody's sort of other experience um, is different. And so if you are, are using the mindset or, or thinking about how you could be an ally, you could be an ally for all kinds of people and use your platform to help those others um, be able to embrace their other, you know, um, category in a way that maybe your own experience in a different way really allows them to, um, you know, take advantage of the privilege that, that you might have uh, to, to get their message out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and to build on that, like, I think it's really important to highlight, again, the fact that like, everyone is in a position of influence, like nobody needs a right. fancy title or, you know, to be the most experienced yeah. person in the room to influence change or to promote inclusion. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think we all play a role in contesting or producing inequality. Uh, agreed. Agreed. <clears throat> Sorry, I cut you off because you were going to give us some, some examples. So do you want to do that? Um, sure. You know, I, I think there's some really low entry point ways that people can Start to become an ally. I think you know one simple way is to really 
educate ourselves, get curious about the experiences of those, yeah, within our orbit, Um, ask questions, have conversations, learn about um, policies that our organizations have in place that, you know, could be uh, helping to promote inclusion and diversity or could maybe be inadvertently um, hindering that kind of advancement. and then, and then I think just just like we were talking about now, I think I think owning our privilege is an important aspect of being an ally. And and this one becomes a little bit tricky because it really does require us to recognize some of the advantages or opportunities or resources that have been afforded to us that may have been denied to others. And I I think that gets tricky because it can sometimes maybe feel like some of our success was not entirely earned, but I think it's also really important to understand that like that privilege, just to the point you were making earlier, Heather is a resource that can be deployed for a lot of good. I think that the idea too, as you, you know, move up the ranks within your organization or as you um, get involved in other community initiatives where you're really viewed in that leadership role it's really about more than just being a role model for others. Um, so, for example, you know, more than having just 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 young girls and, and young women look up to you. Um, but it's really about having those those leaders, peers, um, having the experience with with whom they respect and have it be an eye opening experience and, and what it means for you know, for that, that whole community and that whole level as, as people really kind of move up the, the ranks and have that ability to use their privilege, privilege <clears throat> for that purpose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. I want to ask you about, um, you know, the organizations that want to embrace these principles um, and, and, you know, leadership and, uh, inclusion and diversity; those are, are buzzwords that we that we often hear, and, and companies um, are are taking additional steps to embrace those opportunities. What about the tension um, between representing an inclusive and diverse workforce and managing advancement actually based on meritocracy? What what? How do you reconcile those? This is an interesting question. So. How do we promote diversity and inclusion while ensuring that merit-based advancement is preserved? In, in my view, it's it's pretty simple. Like this is not about handouts; it's about yep. equal opportunity. Yeah. Um, I mean, like as a racialized woman, for example, I don't ever want to be invited into a position just because of the color of my skin or my gender. Right or to check off some sort of box. Um, But at the same time, I do want to ensure that I'm given an equal chance as my peers to access opportunities and to succeed. Yeah. From an organizational perspective, I I think some of that comes down to really identifying and addressing non-merit-based reasons that could be holding certain groups back and that could be promoting Mm. the advancement of other groups. Hmm, that's that's a really interesting um, way of looking at the problem of how do you identify what those barriers actually are? Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, sure. Like, I mean, I, I think a big part of it is about 
awareness and takes us back to that idea of really learning, observing, um, having conversations and understanding what the lived experience of our um, colleagues and peers might be. And simple, a simple example, um, let's say some people within an organization tend to socialize in a particular way regularly and some other people in the organization don't tend to socialize in that same way. And let's say that right. it's during those socializing events that deal teams are formed for new transactions. And maybe that has nothing to do with someone being um, more merit-based qualified to work on that transaction. Maybe they're, equ- they're people who are equally qualified But just by virtue of being in that environment at that particular time, they happen to be having a conversation about the transaction and are given an opportunity to work on it. Mm. Um, It could be even just in in that particular moment, having the awareness that, oh, like if this other person were here too, would I be offering them the opportunity to work on this transaction also? Um, Do I need to ensure that the next transaction that comes in um, does go to that other person. And I think right, it's just right. being aware of those kinds of things. Yeah, I think, you know, I think really the themes of what, what keep coming up are that um, awareness obviously is key. Um, and, then, and then having a, a really thoughtful um, and disciplined approach to the education and I guess distribution of information uh, both ways. So from the groups that we're trying to make sure are more um, included, as well as from the organization that's wanting to make sure that it's really embracing that um, inclus- inclusivity opportunity as the need arises. And as you say, you know, not not just simply ticking the box, but but really thinking about the unique circumstances with with the particular transaction or or whatever's going on at the time. I think that's right. I also, you know, on the merit point, think it's it's probably worth noting, and and I think this is well known that. Um, many members of underrepresented groups often feel the pressure to perform above and beyond their peers in order to establish that their merit is unquestionable. Um, and that's yeah. both to themselves and, and to nip the possibility that someone might ever think that they're sitting at the table for any reason other than they deserve to be yeah. there. And, and that's a big burden to carry, I think. It's a it's a huge burden to carry, I think. And I think that, uh, you know, that's a really insightful comment, because I think that there are a lot of people who carry that burden and 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 perhaps don't necessarily identify that for themselves, that that it's this huge burden because it's just how it's always been for them. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. I think a lot of this happens at a subconscious level. And I think as you've you've alluded to these, that the awareness and the education really goes to first um, you know, bringing it from the subconscious to the conscious. And that's when um, leaders and organizations can then um, implement some some steps to try to, you know, keep it at the surface rather than, um, than, than putting it back in the subconscious. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I think it's, it's important to also note that, like, it's easier, I think, to deny racism or to avoid discussing it because those conversations feel uncomfortable or controversial or impolite. It's important. It's important on both sides of the dialogue. Like, it's important, I think, Heather, if you were to approach me with 
questions or wanted to understand more about my lived experience, it takes a tremendous right. amount of courage, I think, for you to initiate that conversation. Oh, and yeah. it, it's equally important that I embrace and invite that conversation without judgment for the way that you might approach it and to use right. that as an opportunity to further our dialogue. And I mean, if, if my response to your question was anything other than inviting, that mm -hmm. might stop you from ever having that kind of discussion again. And that could stop right. growth. That's right. And I, I think that, the, that, you know, historically that has happened and, and there are people who maybe felt shy about asking a question because they weren't certain how to do so in a way that might be received in an inviting way. And, and then they either ask maybe a, a truncated version of that question that doesn't really allow that conversation to continue or, or worse yet, they don't ask the question and that, and there's no opportunity then for that conversation to actually occur. Yeah. And in my experience, one way of getting around that is to really just start the conversation in an honest way with something like, I don't really know how to go about this. I know I might not get all of the words and the terminology correct, but please know that I'm coming with this from a good place. And my intention yeah. is to learn and understand. And I think even just setting that out can put everyone at ease. Oh, yeah. And I think it's really authentic as well, right? Like if I came to you and said, you know, I'm really just trying to understand, can you help me understand, then who who doesn't want to help someone understand and help them build that allyship, right? I think that's really important. Well, this has been really great. Are there any other, you know, lessons or, um, conver you know, conversation starters or any other tips that you would like to leave with our listeners? A couple, a couple of final thoughts. One on visibility and women in leadership roles or marginalized people in, in leadership roles and, and why that's really important. And I think at a very basic level, it comes down to, it's just harder to be what you can't see. And I think very often yeah. the examples that we see and the stories we hear inform our perception of what we think we're capable of achieving and where in the world we think we belong. I mean, I, I think for the yeah. same reason that it's important that NASA Halloween costumes be made for little girls and little boys and that, you know, the women's world cup gets equal TV airtime as the mm -hmm. guys world cup. Mm -hmm. um, seeing women succeed in leadership roles within organizations can be empowering for the pipeline of upcoming yep. talent. I mean, I think being able to see a future version of yourself being included and succeeding um, makes that option feel more real and accessible and less daunting. Mm -hmm. and, and, and from a business perspective, like what a loss if there's talent that's turning down job opportunities because of a perceived lack of inclusion at an organization based on oh, a lack of visibility. Agreed. Oh, agreed. Agreed. What a, what a lost opportunity on both sides. Yeah. And then, and then Heather, you know, the last thing I think in the context of this conversation, we've been chatting primarily from the perspective of racialized people, uh, women. Uh, and I think it's, it's just important to note that of course there are so many factors that play into diversity and inclusion. And it's important that there is an awareness and considerations that apply to people 
to identify as being from more than one underrepresented right. background. I think yep. like the intersectionality oh. of this stuff. Yeah, it's, it's alive and well. And I mean, no one can really choose or it's unfair to have anyone choose between facets of their identity that aren't reflected in their lived experience. Yeah, I think I think that's a really important um, comment. When when we have these conversations, it's often in the context of very siloed, um, you know, underrepresentations, right? So somebody who fits into this silo, or we talk about somebody who fits into that silo. But the reality is, is that many people fit into multiple silos, and and that can actually magnify the. Um, you know, extent of, of their feelings of, of maybe not belonging, but it also really magnifies the need for why we need to address this topic, because it is so pervasive in, in so many facets of people's personalities and of their lived experience and, and of how they carry out their day to day. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think we'll really be winning when people feel like they can show up into a workplace and be fully included on the basis of their differences and that acceptance is not based solely on sameness and that they don't need to code switch and shed their differences in order to feel fully included. I think that's when we're going to experience probably some of the most interesting, innovative, creative, authentic, thoughtful work cultures. Yeah, very well said. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for taking time today to share your really uh, deep insights into this topic and also the really practical ways that leaders and organizations um, can really embrace this conversation and move it forward. Thanks, Heather. As always, great chatting with you. Thank you for joining the podcast today. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe or follow to get notified when we have an update.